All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. And to be clear on that video, Aspen was riding out on the cart. He did not end up in the truck. Okay. He's good. We were not encouraging that type of behavior either. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into uh, the sermon. Lord, God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Lord, thank you for the work that our ministry partners are doing here. Pray, Lord, that you would bless them. Uh, Father, that you would equip, enable, call us to partner with them to do the work that you have called us to, to bring your kingdom here, to demonstrate your goodness, to demonstrate our love for one another in the work that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our campaign that we've been in is called The Table. So when we talk about the table in the church context, usually we're referring to communion. So when we say we're coming to the table, we are referring to taking the Lord's Supper together. So we've been spending the first few weeks of this campaign talking about Jesus and his institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22, where he shares this Passover meal with his disciples and he kind of gives all of these Passover symbols new meaning, and meaning in himself. So he points the bread, the wine, and he points to them as taking on new meaning in this new covenant community that he is now creating. So he spent the first few weeks kind of exploring what that's all about, what that looks like. Uh, this week we're going to transition a little bit in our campaign to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul is going to teach on communion. And he's going to kind of root one of his primary teachings about unity of community in communion. Okay, so we want to think about what does unity look like? within the church today. Now, if you're familiar with the church culture, you hear this, it might be a foregone conclusion. <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's never going to happen, right? It might seem like some pie-in-the-sky ideal or something that you're like, We're, we, why are we even trying to do this anymore? There's over 45,000 different denominations. What are we doing here, right? So before we even get started with the text today, I want to just like address that right off the bat, right? This is something that's that God is very passionate about. The unity of the church community and families, especially in a local congregational setting. And so this isn't just, um, well, like, we'll try. <laughs> this is super important to us and to God. And like I said in the beginning, we want to keep this church family mindset together. And that involves being unified. So to kind of set the scene for us, if I were to just read the text and you had it, this type of church service that we're experiencing now in mind, it would make no sense to you. So I have to set the scene a little bit about what their church culture was like and what attending church in the first century in Corinth was a little bit. So a couple of key things. One is they met in a house, right? So this idea of a big space where we can all gather uh, in the early years of the church, they couldn't do that, right? They, they met in a house, most likely of one of the more wealthy members of the society, of the church community, who had like a big open courtyard where everybody could meet and gather together. So they would met, meet in a home, and second, they would have two different gathering times. So they would meet early on Sunday morning. So Sunday morning was a work day in that culture. So the Jewish community, which was pretty prevalent throughout the Greco-Roman world, and of course in Israel, but the Jewish community was pretty well established. They would have their Sabbath day on Friday night to Saturday morning, or to Saturday evening, okay? Because they thought of their days very different than we did, which I heard this on the Bible Project podcast, and it really got me thinking. So this is just a, to, uh, I don't know, interesting factoid. Right? Why do we just like start our day in the middle of the night? Why does our day end at midnight and then start over in the middle of the night? 
I don't know. It's interesting. We can talk later, Daniel. But yeah, the because in the ancient world where they didn't have clocks running all the time and the machinery for that, they just went by the sun. When the sun went down, that was the end of the day. It's pretty simple, and that starts a new day. So Friday night, Saturday morning, or it's a Saturday evening, that was their Sabbath day. And Jewish communities were established in Corinth and in other cities of the Greco-Roman world, so that was pretty common. But meeting on Sunday is a work day. So what they would do is they would gather together very early in the morning before work hours, and their work would, for a laborer would start at 6 a.m. You're putting the math together? Woof. Right? You want to be in a part of church? You got to get there at like 4 a.m. to worship together. So they would gather together in a home very early in the morning on Sunday before the laborers would have to go to work. They'd gather together. This is where they'd experience like their more traditional, like what we would think of as a church service. They'd pray. They'd sing songs of praise to God together. They would uh, hear from the text. They would preach a sermon of sorts. They would gather and that's kind of what we would think of as a church service, is what they would do early in the morning. And then they'd all go to work. And then after work, they would gather together for a meal. And they called this meal the love feast. Okay, I am not trying to model that and bring that one back. People would think we're up to some weird stuff if we started calling that here today. right? But that's what they would call it. And they would gather together for a meal at the end of the day. So they just dinner together. So the second part is kind of, is kind of just like church potluck mixed with, like, having friends over for dinner kind of thing, <laughs> where they just meet in the courtyard again, big table, gather around, and share a meal together. Okay? And this is where they would practice communion together. They'd celebrate the Lord's Supper there. So that you have to keep in mind in order to understand what Paul is going to say here. They'd have these two different meetings, and... There was a great deal of diversity in this community as well, which was completely foreign in this culture. In this culture, there was, it was very common to be stratified and to have demonstrations of your stratified socioeconomic status when you would gather together. Just saying like, where you would sit at the table was signify like how prominent you were on the socioeconomic ladder. Um, Slaves would be a part of this community. And in that culture, to be viewed as equal and to participate equally, it just didn't happen in any other social setting. But in the church, they were called to do that, to participate equally together in Christ. And so this was really, really challenging. They had already been formed by the culture, is a way of thinking about it. They had already been formed to think of themselves as higher or lower on the socioeconomic ladder. And now, all of a sudden, Paul says in Colossians 3, here there is a Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So now we're supposed to all think of ourselves as unified, as one in Christ, as a part of this new community that Christ is creating. They'd already been formed to think of themselves on different places in the cultural ladder. Now, that has to change. There's a lot of tension with that in the early church. So with that in mind, let's read the text. So hopefully now it'll make a little more sense to you. 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. 
No doubt there have differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Okay, so he's, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek here saying this, but also making a point, right, that there, there has to be divisions in order to demonstrate those who are in the church who are genuinely in Christ and those who are not. Okay, so it wasn't just today that we have nominal Christians who claim to be a Christian but truly aren't. This was happening in the first century as well. So he's saying, in some ways, like we have to see who has God's approval and God's favor in the way that they are living and carrying out their business. Are they living Christ-like lives or not? So he's saying, in some cases, there has to be some divisions. And in a few verses here, he's going to point to the betrayal of Jesus. And he's reminding them that, yes, this is not the ideal, of course, but even at the Last Supper, even when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, Judas was there, who was about to betray him. Peter was there, who was about to deny him three times. So even though this is not the ideal, it is to be expected within the church community. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. So their divisions are so severe. And what they're doing is just so wrong, so contrary to the gospel, that they're not even practicing the Lord's Supper. Like What you guys are doing is so contrary to the message of the cross that we're remembering at the Lord's Supper, you can't even call it that, is what he's going to say. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Remember, this is that second meal later in the day. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. <laughs> You're like, that's a church service I want to attend, right? <laughs> Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Okay, so what Paul is saying here is, when you guys get together later... Again, they perceive of themselves and their culture and their relationships along this socioeconomic ladder. For day laborers and those who were slaves, they, were, they would work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. was their typical day. They couldn't get off early to come to church. You can't just like submit a request to your boss so easily, right? <laughs> hey, can I get off for church? So they would come later. If you owned your own business or owned your own property... You come at any time. Like, you don't have to stay till 6. You can just show up. So what was happening was those who were more wealthy or had a more privileged status in society, they could come at any time, and they would eat their meal that they brought. They would bring more than, of course, the day laborers who couldn't afford any more. They would eat more, and they would get drunk. So then by the time the rest of the day laborers could get there, they were stuffed and they were drunk. <laughs> and they would come, who are poorer already, with less food, and maybe not even enough food, and they're humiliated. They're reminded of their lower status on the social ladder. Paul has none of it. He's like, this is completely contrary to the way of Christ. So we think of it, when you think of this setting of just like, oh, the poor people show up later. All right, that's cool. Yeah, whatever. And they don't have enough to eat. Yeah, that's okay. Like, Paul's like, no, this is completely contrary to the cross. <laughs> And he's going to demonstrate, he makes a big deal of this. We'll say it like that. He doesn't just say, like, oh, here's a quick solution. Just do this. This isn't that big of a deal. You guys are fine. No, here's what he points to. For I received from the Lord, he's pointing to the cross. For there is indicating, he's arguing, he's building his argument why this is inappropriate behavior. For I received from the Lord what I also passed down to you. He's going to point to communion, the very heart of the Christian life, pointing to the cross, remembering the cross which communion symbolizes. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So here how he points to the betrayal. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, there's lots of different ways to describe that, right? But he points to the betrayal, again, signifying to them that even though this is not ideal, it shouldn't be unexpected that there are these divisions among the church. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's pointing to, hey, remember what communion symbolizes? The cross. Christ's death is the cross for you. We're pointing to that. We're proclaiming that together as a community. All the while, you're completely violating the heart of it by your practice. Tracking? Good? Nods? Okay, cool, cool. <clears throat> so then, whoever eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of against the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, it's so important that we read this in context. Okay, verse 27, so then, if you're a highlighting person, highlight that. That means what he's doing is building what he's about to say on what he has previously said in the last paragraph or two, right? So he's building this idea of their divisions being contrary to the nature of communion. And so when he says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Read that in context. If we don't read that in context, we can jump to a lot of wild inferences about what he's saying here. And we can end up doing a lot more harm than good. And in fact, we can even like violate his actual principle in the name of what we think he's saying by like excluding people from communion. When that creates more divisions, when what he's trying to do is point to, hey, this should be the unifying factor of us as a church, okay? So I'm just gonna say what it means. I'm not gonna go into all the ways that has been misinterpreted or misused in history, okay? But there's lots of confusion around it. What he's saying here is taking communion in an unworthy manner is taking communion in such a way that demeans, disrespects, or otherwise humiliates others in the covenant community of Christ. Okay? I'll say that one more time. Taking communion in an unworthy manner is taking it in such a way that demeans, disrespects, or otherwise humiliates others in the covenant community of Christ. And this is especially relevant in this context of those who have more privilege taking advantage of those who have less privilege. Okay, you guys tracking with the story so you see what he's saying. And as we're going to see, when that happens, it really invokes the wrath of God. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. So this is the context he's telling us to examine ourselves in. To, are we acting like Jesus in community? Are we willing to give up our rights, privileges, out of love for another who has less? Or are we just demanding our rights and therefore exercising our power over and against those who have less for our own benefit? Okay, That is completely contrary to the cross. That's what he wants to examine ourselves about. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the body of Christ is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church. So if you're taking communion without discerning the body of Christ and thinking about how you're treating others in the body, you eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. So what Paul's doing, he's connecting with what's going on in the church as a judgment or as discipline for their violation of the Lord's Supper and communion. 
So he's saying, in this instance, what's happened is a lot of you are sick, a lot of you are dying, and that is a, that is a discipline that God has brought upon you so that you will learn to live in community. But we are more discerning, but if we are more discerning with ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So again, he's pointing to the discipline that God loves you as a, as a heavenly father. He loves you. He cares for you. Discipline. I'm a parent. I have a nine and a seven-year-old. Like I love them and I care for them, so I discipline them <laughs> so that they learn to live better the way of Jesus. Because <laughs> without it, like we will continue to live our selfish lives. It's actually good for us that we experience discipline. And God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us as well so that we learn to live in this covenant community, the way of Christ as well. Hebrews 12.10 tells us they disciplined us, talking about our parents, for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So, he's pointing to what's happening in the context of Corinth as discipline for their violation of the Lord's Supper and how the, the, the wealthy were using their rights and privileges not to love and serve those who had less, but for their own benefit, to get full and drunk and humiliate them. Okay? So then, again, continuing to build on this idea, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further instructions. Okay, so here's the solution, right? It is so simple. Paul could have just said, hey, guys, you guys eating, getting drunk beforehand at the expense, not, not waiting for everybody else to eat, just wait. <laughs> just wait and have a snack. That's his solution, right? Like, have a snack before you get there so you're not super hungry and just wait for everybody else to get there. But no, to him, so the solution is simple. The problem is division. The solution is very simple. But the heart of the matter is so deeply contrary to the way of Christ that he says, what you're doing is not even practicing the Lord's Supper because you're exercising your freedoms and your rights and privileges over and against at the harm of the others within the church community, this isn't the cross. This isn't the way of the cross that you're living. That's a big issue. That's huge. Just eating before people get there, not a big deal. But harming others and using your rights and privileges at the expense of others, completely contrary to the way of Jesus. And he goes to great lengths to call them out for this. Band, you guys can come and get set up. Because that type of living and that type of thinking destroys unity. It destroys it within the church. And so Paul gives us here three quick things. One is unity by, which is the method of which we attain unity. We attain unity in the church by laying down our rights and privileges for those who have less privileges. There has to be a method for how we attain unity, and this is it. And this is consistent throughout all of Scripture. Why? Well, because Christ and the cross demand it. If we think about the cross, if we think about what Christ did for us, that's exactly what he did. So we should do that for one another. Unity or else we risk incurring God's discipline. 
God is a loving Heavenly Father, knows that this is best for us to live this way, and he will discipline us so that we learn to live this way. I'll apply this when I come back up. For now, let's pray, and then we're going to sing praises to our Savior. Lord, God, we thank you for your example. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to live in unity together. We thank you that you have given us the method of attaining unity. Lord, you've given us your spirit who can form this in us and move us towards this. So, Lord, pray as we take communion together that we would be reminded of what you have done for us, but not just there, Lord, but move to desiring to live the way that you have lived, that you would form in us the way of Jesus and trust that your way truly is the best way to live, Lord. Even though everything within us, our selfishness, our individualism is drawing us away from that. So Lord, we love you and we worship you and now as we sing, we declare that you are our King, you are our Savior, you are our God. And we want to follow you with all that we are. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. If you need prayer, there's prayer available for you in the back. Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in you. That we were hopelessly lost in our sin, alienated from God. But Jesus, because of the cross, because of you dying in our place, faith and trust is in you, we can be made new. We can experience the fullness of life, the resurrection life that you came to give us. And Lord, you give us hope that one day, as we were just singing, you will make all things new. And the divisions, the disunity that we experience now, the selfishness of our own heart and our pride will one day be no more. Jesus, we will dwell with you in the fullness of your presence, experiencing the unity of your people. Lord, give us hope in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. All right, our big idea was these three things that Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth about their divisions and their misuse of communion. Remember, he says, this wasn't even communion you guys are taking because you're completely violating the meaning of communion and what we're celebrating in the cross, remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So he gives us the method of unity. He gives us the reason and the possible discipline that can come from a violation of this. First, before we even dive into this a little bit more and I tease some of them out, I want to just kind of go through a few uh, broader, bigger picture things really quick. One, when I talk about unity, I tend to, I've historically gone back to like, oh, we just agree, disagree over doctrinal issues. And that's the reason why we have so much disunity in the church at large. That's the reason why we have 45,000 different denominations. And it's really, really hard for churches to gather together <laughs> and do anything collectively. And there's a lot of truth to that. I think that's a big part of it. But I think the core problem is much more fundamental to Christian life and the soul and our soul than it is, than just we disagree over something theoretically. And part of the reason for that is, <laughs> as I think about it, like we learn to love people 
and to care for people who disagree with us about important stuff all the time. I don't know that we're very good at it as a culture as a whole, but we, we do, right? Anybody who has adult children and their adult children disagree with them about some important things, even doctrine or theology or with the way they live their life, you've learned to do that, right? You've learned to love them, even though they disagree with you over important things. We all likely have friends who disagree with us over important things, and we still learn to love them in the midst of our disagreements over truth. Coworkers, all these different spheres of life, we kind of learn to do that to some degree. But in the church, we don't do that so well. And I think what's at the heart of it is we've elevated even truth claims over what Jesus told us was the greatest claim or the greatest uh, ethical imperative, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've kind of elevated these truth claims over love. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? So it doesn't mean that we have to agree. There are truth claims in Scripture that we can cling to. But never are we justified in not loving, even if we disagree over a truth claim. I'm thinking of it historically. There's been periods in church history where heretics would be burned at the stake under the authority of the church. How did we get so far? (laughs) How could you possibly get so far from the way of Jesus, of dying for people, the Pharisees, who disagreed with him over truth claims, to now burning people at the stake who disagree with us over truth claims? How can we so elevate anything else over love that we then are willing to go to such great lengths? Unloving lengths. Creating divisions with people around us. So, I think doctrinal differences are important. I'm a doctrine guy. I love talking doctrine. It's vitally important. Truth claims are vitally important in Scripture. But never at the expense of love. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but you must love. (laughs) Period. End of story. Scripture calls us not only to love one another in the church community, but to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So, we are never justified in unloving, in not loving. So I think the problem, the root problem, is much deeper than just theological disagreements. The root problem is a failure to love. And that's not a small thing. Because when it comes to next week, we're going to talk about uh, John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Jesus tells us that how you love one another is how the world will know that you are my disciples. <laughs> this has far-reaching implications. That if we don't love one another well, That is our primary mode of evangelism and making the way of Jesus look awesome. (laughs) And if we don't do that well, no wonder, no wonder our culture is moving away from the Christian faith. Second, I've already kind of mentioned this early on. You may think of unity as just like a foregone conclusion, right? (laughs) Like, ah, it's never going to happen. It's not even worth pursuing or thinking about. And we have a lot of work to do here. We have a lot of work to do here. I think the last few years have revealed to us that this is, I think, one of the most important, if not the most important thing for the church to focus on now, is how do we maintain unity? Why do we maintain unity? And how do we pursue this? How passionately do we pursue this? Or do we just write it off and say, eh, that's a pie-in-the-sky dream that can't possibly happen anymore? In Scripture, the scriptural authors constantly call us to fight for this. God calls us to fight for this, to fight for unity. It's not easy, but it's always worth it. It's 
always something to pursue. It's never something to just give up. Because the cultural powers drawing us away from being united in a community are strong. (laughs) Satan is drawing us away from this. Individualism. How we exercise our freedoms, our personal freedoms. If we do so at the expense or harm of others or those who have less privilege and freedom, that's contrary to the way of Jesus. And in a culture that so values freedom, which is a good thing, right? But how we exercise that, we can also use our freedom to restrict some of our privileges and freedom. That's more in line with the way of Jesus. So, this is vitally important for the church. This isn't a foregone conclusion. This is something that we must continue to pursue together. So the method that Paul gives us and is consistent throughout all of Scripture is laying down privileges for those who are less privileged. So this is how we attain unity. We need a method for how to do this. And this is Scripture's call for it. And I use the word privilege specifically on purpose because I know it can be triggering. (laughs) But I think it's a good description of what Paul is saying here. Those who were showing up to the meal early had a more privileged status, and they were using their privileged status to humiliate those who had nothing. And he was furious about that. He says, this is so contrary to the way of Jesus, you're not even partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's outside the definition of what the Lord's Supper is. So, that's the method. It's the same in Romans 14. James talks about it as well, and it's rooted in Christ himself and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, which we are celebrating in communion. So the church, we tend to be pretty good about this, of giving up our uh, privileges and even our time and our rights for the benefit of others when it comes to money. Like, evangelical Christians are extremely generous, and that has been documented time and time again. So, good job, guys. We, we do really good with that. We've witnessed that here as the church, and we're super good about that. Time and service and helping others when we need When somebody needs help, I know a lot of you guys will drop anything to go and help somebody else in the church who needs a hand. Our meal train, they get filled up pretty quickly whenever somebody needs somebody to make meals, all this stuff. We do really good with laying down a lot of our rights and privileges when it comes to things like that. So kudos. Well done, everybody. You guys are good. You guys do a really good job with that. Where we're currently working (laughs) as a church community and as a whole is around more of the uh, culture war issues that are raging right now in our culture, which kind of brings us back to what are we being formed by again, right? Are we being formed more by the culture and the ideas that are on our news outlets, or are we being formed more by the way of Jesus? So when we think about it in terms of things like, like gender, so like the Me Too movement had been going on years, it's been a while, right? Sexual abuse raging within the church. And what that often involves is Men in positions of authority, not using their positions of authority in the church to humbly love and serve the women in their church communities, but they're using their authority to exploit, to demean, to abuse them. That is so contrary to the way of Jesus, right? Instead of laying down rights and privileges for the benefit of others, they're using those rights and privileges to exploit, to abuse, and to harm. Race, socioeconomic status, those are things that we are still wrestling with as a church, as a whole. A couple years ago, we had a good case study of this as well uh, during the COVID eras. I think Paul's message would have been essentially the same. 
then as it was today. <laughs> or, yeah, today as it was then. Pretty much every pastor I talk to says that was like the most divisive time they have ever experienced in the church. And so much of it was over things like gathering, masking, other things like that. Even on both sides of the equation, there were so many who were acting unloving towards those who had a disagreement on a non-essential matter. And so as we reflect on that time, our heart ought to have been to have the heart of Christ. Of how can I lay down my right, my privilege, to wear a mask, not wear a mask. How can I lay down that privilege and right in love for those who are less privileged? How did that factor into your equation? If you didn't have any health concerns, I'm not concerned about me getting sick, perhaps. I'm not concerned about, I'm not caring for somebody who's vulnerable and weak. How can I then lay down my rights for the benefit of somebody who is concerned about that? That should be the default posture for Christians. As we are being transformed more into the image of Christ, that should be becoming the default posture, I should say, for all of us as Christians. And instead, we experience just massive divisions in churches. And you guys are still here, so kudos to you guys. <laughs> you guys uh, I'm preaching to the choir to some degree here, right? I think at the time, there were many churches where Paul would have slacked us, right, and said, like, hey, guys, said the same thing. Like, you guys aren't practicing the Lord's Supper. You are so divided over this. Instead, have the heart of Christ and communion that you're celebrating, so as you're taking this, like, you're not taking that because you're doing so while participating in the community selfishly, not considering the way of Christ and how I can give up my rights and privileges for the benefits of others. That should be at the forefront of our minds when it comes to a crisis like that. But again, our values of individualism and freedom, just like in the Corinthian church, their cultural values of socioeconomic status, and they viewed everybody on a ladder of that, were so divisive. So our values, hyper-individualism, and our exercise of our freedoms at the expense of others can be very detrimental to the church and the unity of the church. And why should we be unified? Because Christ and the cross demand it. This is the example of Christ. When we celebrate communion, we are remembering the one who is God. And he gave up his rights and his privileges as God to not experience hunger, to not experience pain, to not experience death, to not get tired and exhausted. He gave up all of those rights and privileges and he came and he lived a life of relative poverty to die. A humiliating, publicly humiliating, painfully excru excruciating death on the cross for us. He owed us nothing and he still owes us nothing. And he did that for us out of his love and his mercy. And he was willing to lay down all of those rights and privileges for us. And if that is the Savior that we are remembering and celebrating in communion, how can we then not give up our rights and privileges and love for others around us? He's the author and perfecter of our faith. We're called to model our life after him. And so when we remember communion and we come to communion, that's what we are called to consider. You know, or else we risk incurring God's discipline. God's really, really passionate about this. Throughout the Old Testament, he says time and time again, he criticizes the people of Israel for their failure to stand up for the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the foreigner, the widow. They were using their positions of power to harm them 
and to exploit them to get what they want instead of serving them as he had called them to in the law. I read this week in my devotional, Psalm 146, 7 to 9. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. God is our heavenly father is not going to let this go. <laughs> he will discipline us so that we learn to give up our rights and privileges because it is so countercultural in our world today. We have been so formed to use my freedoms and exercise them in order to just get what I want instead of to love and serve others. So this is so countercultural. It is so challenging and so difficult for us to grasp this. He is going to discipline us like any good parent disciplines their kids so that we learn to do this well. And we can learn the hard way or we can learn the easy way. <laughs> I would suggest we learn the easy way by meditating on scripture, by communing with Christ, by coming to him and asking for the Holy Spirit to form this heart within us, to love our neighbor more, to recognize that this is a deeper seated problem than just perhaps a difference of opinion. Perhaps it's in my heart that I just don't love well. And really getting into it and asking the Spirit of God to move in you, to change your heart, to soften your heart, to love even in the midst of differences of opinion, and to lay down your rights and privileges for the benefits of others. And so as we come to communion, I invite you to reflect on this. Reflect on that, your willingness to lay down your rights, your willingness to freely exercise your freedoms, not just for yourself, but to others. What have we learned about ourselves in the last few years? How can we grow closer to the way of Jesus in light of what we've learned about our heart's desires? How can we better reflect the cross, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who gave up his own life for us? And I think the best way to do it is just think about Jesus. The more you meditate on Jesus, the more you meditate on the cross, the more you just sit in prayer and communion with him, the more the Holy Spirit will form in you that attitude. The more you admire him, the more you love him and desire to live his way, the more the Spirit of God will form this type of thinking in your heart. And it'll play out in your actions. So as we come to communion now, just be reflecting on that. The elements, I'll spread them out up here on the table. Front rows, you guys come to the middle and hold on to both of the cups at, the, at your chair while we, I'll, I'll pray for them all together. There's two cups, bread and the juice, onto them together. We'll pray together and partake of them together. But while you're sitting there, just reflect on this. Reflect on your heart of humility, your heart of concern and willingness to give up your rights and privileges for the benefit of others. And reflect on Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. And model your attitude, your heart, and your life after his.
so in your power because, Lord, you have taken our sin and you have nailed it to the cross. We thank you as we partake together. Let's partake of the bread. Would you pray with me for the cup? Lord Jesus, we are unrighteous. We are unholy. Lord, because your blood was shed for us, and our faith is in you, we can be made holy. We are justified, we are sanctified because of you. So Lord, I pray that we would live in this newness of life that you have given us, empowered by your spirit and love for others because of how you've loved us trusting all the while that our righteousness is not in whether we succeed or fail, but in your blood shed for us on the cross. And Lord, from that peace that we have with you because of your work on the cross, we can then pursue unity. We can humble ourselves. We don't have anything to prove. We can humble ourselves and exercise our freedom and love for others. So Lord, we thank you for uniting us with God through the cross, that we can be in your presence forevermore. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Let's partake of the cup together. Allow me to pray for you one more time as we go. Lord, God, I pray that your spirit would inspire this in our hearts, that we would so desire and know so well the way of Jesus that we would commune with you daily, Lord. That your spirit would form in us this mentality of Jesus against all of the cultural pressures, against the lies and the temptations of the enemy that would draw us, Lord, towards selfishness, towards our pride. But Lord, give us an image of the way of Jesus. Help that to be what we desire most, to live your way that we might be with you, Lord, forever and give us hope in the new creation that it will not be this way forever. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you guys need prayer before you go, please receive prayer in the back. If not, thanks for being here. Have a wonderful Sunday.